At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. Hopefully you found Mark chapter 5. If not, I would encourage you to do so as we unpack a lot from this text this morning. So one of the probably great privileges, but also kind of challenging spaces that you enter from time to time as a pastor is when you spend time with people who are on the brink of death or have loved ones who are on the brink of death. On one hand, it's a great privilege one that we count as an honor as pastors to be with people in some of the most hard, painful moments of life. Um, but it's also pretty daunting at times when those calls come, and um, we want to be there. We don't want anyone to have to walk through those moments alone. Um, but it, it can be daunting, right, because you recognize the weight of what it means to step into that moment. Death is a harrowing reality that all of us face. And we face it ultimately for ourselves, but we also face it for the people that we love. And often when we're in those spaces, it can kind of um, feel significantly overwhelming. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 likened death to the last enemy to be destroyed. And if you've ever faced the reality of death, you know that that's exactly what it feels like, like an enemy, an unconquerable enemy. Part of the pain and reality of death is that it's really the ultimate consequence for our rebellion as humanity. God made it clear that the consequence for our sin would result in death. And when we stand in that moment, when we experience that moment, whether for someone we love, if you've had near-death experiences, whatever it may be, you feel that weight or you feel that gravity. And when you're in those spaces, it can feel overwhelming. How did Jesus face death? We've been in a series for the last few weeks called Thy Kingdom Come, where we've been teaching through three chapters in the Gospel of Mark that kind of reveal the essence of Jesus' kingdom that he brings in his ministry. Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1 with the words, uh, the Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He comes to announce and inaugurate the kingdom. And as we've been looking over the last few weeks, his whole life and ministry was revealing the reality of who he was and the kingdom that he was bringing. And in that, Jesus encountered many challenges to the reality of his kingdom. And we've looked at those together. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the challenge that Jesus faced when it came to the storm on the sea. Last week we looked at the challenge of facing spiritual enemies that were against him. But what about this final enemy, as Paul calls it? How did Jesus face 
the most harrowing reality that we all have to face at some point. Well, this morning we're going to look at a story where Jesus encounters. He wasn't invited to a hospital room, but he was invited to a home where somebody was on the brink of death. And in that reality, he encounters it in a way. And I think we see some really significant things in how Jesus relates to the reality of death and what he has for us as we face that reality ourselves. Remember, Mark has two things in mind throughout his gospel that he wants you to recall. The first thing that he wants you to remember and and really see is who is Jesus? His whole gospel is continuing to reveal to you the reality that he believes Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah, the promised king that God was coming to send his kingdom and that he was ultimately going to bring that through his life, death, and resurrection. But he has a second lens. So as he shows you who Jesus is, he also wants you to see what does it mean to follow him? What does it actually look like then to follow this king? And as Mark's been unfurling the authority of Jesus as king, he's also been uh, inviting us to consider what it actually looks like to follow him. So a couple weeks we looked at the reality that Jesus is king or he's Lord over creation. That's why the wind and the waves obey him. And because of that, in those that follow him, we don't have to fear the physical threats that are around us. He is over those realities. Last week, we saw that he's Lord of the demonic realm or the spiritual forces of darkness that are against God and his kingdom. And because he's Lord over darkness, our greatest darkness can be transformed by Jesus to become our greatest testimony that he actually can do a work in changing our reality from darkness to light and life. But today, as Mark kind of wraps up, he focuses us towards this great enemy, death. And he does so by telling us not one story, but actually two stories. So if we're going to do two stories, I think that means I get double the time to preach, right? Is that, is that how that works? Yeah. So like, oh my gosh. But Mark, often through his gospel, will use a literary technique called sandwiching which means he takes one story and he stuffs another story in the middle of it. Now, these stories actually happen in the same time as Jesus was going about his ministry, but he kind of puts these stories together where he starts one, inserts another, and then kind of comes back to finish the other. And he does this on purpose because he wants you to draw parallels and connections between the two stories. And often they help interpret each other to kind of make a larger point in what Mark wants you to see about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so as we encounter these two stories this morning, I think there's three things that Mark really wants to draw out in, in, the, in re, relation to Jesus' encounter with the reality of death and disease. The first thing that he wants you to see is our desperation in light of it. So come back with me to the text. You heard Allie read it, but we'll kind of work through it again. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Now, one of the things you'll note that connects the stories that we've been studying through is Jesus' ministry in relation to the sea. If you remember, he was teaching by the sea in Mark chapter 4. Then he traveled across the sea and encountered the great storm. Then he went to the Gentile territory of the Decapolis last week where he encountered the demonized man. Now he comes back to the Jewish side of the sea and has another encounter, right? So these sea theme kind of links. And, and remember, if you remember, the sea in Jewish mindset is the source of chaos and evil. They connected that. 
And so it's not a coincidence that all the stories that we encounter in Jesus' authority being laid out by Mark around the sea are in relation to the chaos of sin and evil and death. Right? He, he engages all of those realities. So here he comes to this one. And so Jesus is beside the sea. And then it says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. So Jesus comes to the other side of the sea, and immediately a guy meets him. And Mark notes that this man, Jairus, is the ruler of the synagogue. So in that day, the synagogue was the Jewish center of worship that would exist within a town. And this man was the leader of it. He was in charge of leading its services. He was in charge of caring for the community, much like you would understand a pastor to be in a church today. That was much what a synagogue ruler was at that time. They would have been well-educated. They were esteemed and respected within the town. And so this is a guy who's, who's kind of, um, he's, on, he's a, in a well-privileged position is a, is a way to think of it. But he comes to Jesus and he does something unexpected. He falls at his feet and essentially begins begging him. Now, in those days, Jewish men never would act this undignified before another. To, to come to someone and to fall at their feet was something that men did not do in, they, in those days, especially rabbis. They carried themselves with a lot of dignity in the way that they interacted. You kind of see that in some ways throughout the New Testament. But this guy goes the opposite reason. Why? Well, he has a pretty significant reason. We see in 23, he says to him, he's begging him, says to him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So the reason he comes and acts so undignified toward Jesus is because he's desperate. That, that phrase we say at the point of death, that's a Hebrew idiom. It can almost be like saying she's ready to take her last breath, right? Like he's, he's really emphasizing the reality of what his daughter is facing. And he thinks if Jesus can come, he's heard of the stories of Jesus and the healing that he's bringing. If Jesus, if you could just come and touch her, then she could be healed. Now, I love Jesus, right? He's attentive. It just says, and he went with him. So Jesus is invited into the space of disease and death, and he willingly goes. He's not reluctant in this situation. But something happens along the way. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. We've seen this. Jesus' popularity was rising. The crowds are surrounding him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. So here we encounter another desperate person in the face and reality of death. So we've encountered Jairus, and we've encountered the reality of his daughter and their desperation in that thing. But Jesus also encounters this woman. She's unnamed in the passage, so she's low in her social status. Mark is highlighting that. And she has a disease within her that actually is causing her not just physical pain, but also spiritual and social brokenness. She's facing what I would call a living death because of what she's suffering, right? Mark notes this, that she has a discharge of blood for 12 years. Well, the Old Testament law had very specific rules when it came, and laws when it came to the reality of the discharge of blood. Leviticus 15 actually gives it. It says in notes what was to take place when there was a normal discharge or a menstruation period or period, right? I mean, I know that you didn't come to church to talk about that, but we're all adults here, so we can just have a conversation, right? This is what the Bible points towards. 
It says, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Right? So the Bible's clear. Just put it in frank terms. Whenever a woman had her period, she was to remove herself for seven days until she was clean, and then she would come back. My wife still wishes that this would happen in some case, that she'd get a seven-day break once a month. That's what she told me. I didn't say that. But there, there's a reason for this. So I, I know this seems really odd in our mind, 3,000 years removed from God's law, right? And part of it might be a hygienic reason, but there's also a more significant theological reason, which was human beings were created to create and cultivate life, right? We were to rule under God and to steward and create life. But because of our sin, we brought death into the world. And death is the things, death and all of its consequences, right? You could put disease in this category, those things. Death is the things that are anti the life of God's world. Now, when God renews Israel and brings them to himself, and he now says, hey, I'm going to come dwell among you, he's holy, which means God can't be in the presence of sin and death among his people. And so what we see, one of the themes that we see throughout the law given is that when someone encountered the reality of death, they were considered unclean, which means they needed to be cleansed before they could be restored back in relationship with God and his people. This is why you didn't touch dead bodies. Right? There were these ideas of clean and unclean. So a woman's period is associated with the reality of death. Right? It's the potential for life that's lost regularly throughout. And it was seen then as unclean, so there needed to be a period of cleaning and restoration. So that's, what, that's the theological reason. Okay? And now you're going to see this then, when that's the regular rhythm, what happens when there's an irregular rhythm? Well, Leviticus 15 continues. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanliness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanliness of her menstrual impurity. Catch 27. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. So, I show you that because I want you to understand the woman's situation based on what the law calls for. She's had 12 years where she's experienced this reality, this menstrual impurity, as the text says in Leviticus, which means this woman is left ostracized or cut off from the community because if she's unclean, anyone that would touch her would then become unclean which means there's a high likelihood that for 12 years, this woman has remained untouched, unencountered, cut off because of what she's experiencing physically. So when I say that this is a woman who's desperate because of a living death, this is somebody who's broken within their physical self, right? She's experiencing something she has no control over that's resulting in her social ostracization from the community. And then she wouldn't be allowed to participate in the regular practices of Jewish worship until there was healing. So there's even a sense of her removal from her relationship with God. And this woman has tried everything to deal with that reality. I mean, the text notes that she had spent 
uh, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So she kept going to doctor after doctor after doctor, couldn't find the healing, couldn't figure it out. She spent everything she had. So now she's financially destitute, she's poor, she's cut off. I mean, she is in a terrible situation and plight. And she highlights for us the extreme reality of the effect of death. Right? That's all the connection and theme. Back from the Old Testament to this. It's this reality of death and its effects. And it leaves us feeling desperate. We feel that. We feel that when we get diagnosis still today that we have no cures for, no answers for. And we know that this is going to resolve in something towards the end. We don't know how long when those come. But we feel that desperation. Death makes us feel desperate. Whether it's on the brink of it like the girl or whether it's in a living death where we experience the brokenness. And the reality of death is none of us escape it. None of us. No one gets the life that says, oh yeah, I'm perfectly healthy. Everything's fine. I have great relationships all the time. Me and God are good. I never experience any pain or suffering or anything. And then I just get to go on into immortality forever. No one gets that. Everybody gets death. All of us suffer from its consequences and its reality. And we all feel the desperation. Now, in our culture, we try to ignore that as long as possible. We don't like to talk about death. We put it out of our minds. We ignore it until it hits us upside the head and we can't ignore it anymore. And when that comes, we desire deliverance, something, safe, help, because we recognize how powerful of an enemy it is. Death always leaves humanity in the state of desperation, just like it did Jairus and his daughter, just like it did the woman. And so Mark wants you to see and feel even for a moment because it's okay to feel that desperation because what's going to happen next comes out of that reality, the desperation that we feel in light of death. So that's the first theme that you see. The second thing, though, that you see throughout this passage in the connection of the two stories is Jesus's touch. Look what happens. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, catch what he said, who touched me? Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Right? I mean, you've been in a crowd with people before, right? You've been at a concert or a sporting event. People are all crowded around. If you were with a buddy and that buddy said, hey, who touched my arm? You'd be like, bro, there's like 500 people around us. I have no idea. Right? Jesus is like, hey, stop, everybody. Who touched me? And they're like, "Uh, I I don't even know how you answer that question, Jesus. Well, the question is answered by the woman herself. And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So catch the first theme here. Catch the the thing of touch. She reaches to touch his garment. He recognizes, Jesus is attuned to his own reality, so he recognizes that power's gone out, and his first question is, who touched me? So there's this whole interaction with the reality of her reaching out for him, him recognizing the touch and what that meant, and what we see is that in her reaching and touching of him, she's healed. 
The disease that she faces, the thing that's been keeping her ostracized and cut off from her God, from her community, from herself, is suddenly in the interaction with Jesus completely healed. And not only that, out of his touch, her dignity is restored. Right? She, she just kind of sneaks into like, hey, maybe I'll touch the garment, I'll get healed, and I'll go away. Because she knows. Remember, she's unclean. So if she gets found out, it's a big deal in the community that she would make all these other people clean and potentially make Jesus unclean. But Jesus won't have her just come in and sneak away. Jesus calls her out, and she recognizes she's not going to get away with it, and so he draws her and points out the reality of what she's done. And she's honest with Jesus. She tells him everything. Yeah, I came, I snuck in, I touched your garment, and I was healed. And Jesus gives her this incredible response. Daughter. Right, that, that's this beautiful thing. He's inviting her back in to be seen as part of God's family in his community. Right? He's restoring in this moment her dignity, not just her physical healing, but her social and spiritual well-being as well. Daughter, your faith has made you well. It saved you. That's the, that's the actual real term. It saved you. right? Because in the Jewish mindset, salvation isn't just about where you go when you die. It's about the flourishing, holistic life that God has for all people. And so he's saying your faith has made, it's brought that flourishing reality. Go in shalom. Go in harmony or peace. Right? This is Jesus. So you see this. Be healed of your disease. You see this restorative, incredible moment that Jesus' touch brings to this woman. But there's another guy like over on the side, I don't know if you remember him, Yairus, who I guess at this point is probably like, um, hey, Jesus, remember like this little girl I've got? Like, I don't know why we need to stop and have a whole conversation here. Right, remember, his mind is, you come and touch her, she'll be healed of her disease. But Jesus stops to interact with this woman, this unnamed woman. Well, unfortunately, Yairus' situation goes from bad to worse. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? So, so catch, catch the theme, right? You had a woman, a daughter initially who's experienced, she's on the brink of death. You encounter a woman who's experienced a living death, but now death has had its final say. And we feel, feel in the text, the finality of death. We know it because the statement is like, well, yeah, she's dead. Why bother him anymore? It's done. When death comes, it has the final word. Right? We, we all assume that. And so that's what they say. But note how Jesus responds. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Oh, thanks, Jesus. Like, great. I just find out my daughter's, and the first thing you're going to be is like, hey, don't be scared, so it's going to be okay. Like, you know, Jesus, I told you, Jesus loves to give a little challenge. So he's gentle. Sometimes not, but this time at least I think he's a little gentle. But do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brothers of James. Now that's significant in Mark because whenever those three are invited, they're Jesus' inner circle, when they're kind of invited, it usually signifies Mark's going to give you a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. They only get some special moments like here, the transfiguration. They get special insight in moments. So there's a, there's a reason it's those three. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing. In Middle Eastern cultures, it would common when somebody died for there to actually be professional wailers, like people the community would gather, and they would mourn excessively. If you've ever lived in the Middle East, they are not quiet in their mourning. They are very loud in their mourning, and that's okay, right? In our culture, we're like, don't talk about it. 
In their culture, they're like, weep and wail, right? So that that's what's happening. And Jesus shows up and says, well, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. D- don't miss this, right? I-, I want you to catch it. Jesus steps into this moment in his reality. He knows who he is as Lord. And as he steps in, he's very clear. So he's like, hey, she's not dead, she's sleeping. They step into this moment from their reality. So when Jesus' reality matches theirs, they go with their reality and they start to mock him. This wasn't like a ha-ha, funny joke, Jesus. It was like, uh, what the heck are you talking about? Right? They're, They're mocking him and his reality. So Jesus sends them out. And look what happens next. Taking her by the hand. Catch that. So here's the touch return. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now this is amazing here, and I want you to see this, because Jesus steps into this moment with this girl, and he takes her by the hand, and he uses this Aramaic phrase. Now, in translation, it gets a little bit lost towards our because this is an Aramaic phrase that's then translated to Greek that then's translated to English. So we kind of hear it, and I think when we hear it, we miss some of the intimacy that Je- of the language Jesus is using. So this phrase, talithi kumi, scholars note, is really a phrase of intimacy. It's like if you walked into your kid's room and they were sleeping and you like put their hand on their back and you said, hey, honey, it's time to get up. Right? That, that's what the phrase is. Like Jesus doesn't walk in the room and he's like, little girl, arise. Right? He like sits down on the bed and he takes her hand like she's a sleeping child and says, hey, honey, it's time to get up. And she gets up. Right? So you see Jesus' reality and his touch that simply the invitation of his hand makes death look like sleep. And this girl is raised. And in this, we see that Jesus' touch it not only restores dignity, but it brings life. Life is resurrected in his reality and what he brings. And I think what we see in this, what we see in this is the incredible reality of Jesus. You see, when it comes to death and disease, we know that touch is the transference of disease. Right? I mean, that's why if someone's sick, what do you say? Stay home. Right? COVID-19 came and we were like, nobody touch anybody. Stay in your rooms. Stay six feet apart. Because we know intuitively the way disease is transferred is through touch and interaction with one another. That, that that's what actually, when, when you're sick and you touch someone who's well, what happens? You don't get well, they get sick. Except for Jesus. That there's something in Jesus that when the sick touch him, their sickness is not transferred to him, but his life and healing is transferred to them. That when he stands in the encounter with death, death doesn't overtake him. In fact, he's so powerful, he just invites a little girl to wake up like you would wake up from a nap, and she arises. And so what Mark is trying to show you here is that Jesus is the Lord over death and disease. That that's the sort of authority and power. 
Don't miss the responses. The woman encounters Jesus' reality, and she's left fear and trembling. We've seen that theme of awe at Jesus' power throughout these stories. The crowd sees Jesus raise this daughter, and their response is amazement. How could this be the case? And so all through it, Mark wants you to highlight who Jesus is. And he wants you to see in this story the foreshadowing of what he ultimately is going to bring for all people in the reality of death and disease. The greater salvation that he foreshadows here. Remember, Jesus' miracles are revelatory. They're meant to reveal who he is in light of the greater work that he's doing. And so what he's revealing in his authority as the Son of God is also revealing what he's going to bring at the end of the story, when Mark gets to the reality of his death and resurrection. See, Mark wants you to see that the touch that Jesus brings here, he brings an even greater way for all people. And that he ultimately does it through the two realities that we see here, through death and resurrection. One of the connections Mark makes in this passage is the reality of blood, right? This woman has a discharge of blood. She's healed of blood. But something in Leviticus would have happened once she was healed. She still had to have her sin atoned for in order for the full restoration to come. That's why in Leviticus 15 it would continue that after those seven days, on the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. So this foreshadowing and healing recognizes that there's still atonement to come. Sin because it's, which leads to death, ultimately must be dealt with for the full restoration of life to come. While the law foreshadows that, what we would learn through the rest of the gospel and on into the New Testament is this is exactly what Jesus comes to offer, the final sacrifice to make atonement for sins so that life could happen. That's why the author of Hebrews would say, every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The atonement that this woman needs, even in her cleansing, is ultimately provided by Jesus himself. And the atonement that all of us need for our sin and rebellion against God, Jesus paid once for all upon the cross. And what displays his power most fully in conquering our sin and death in the story is also the thing that most fully displays his victory in the gospel, which is resurrection. He shows his power over death and disease in this story, but he ultimately shows his greater victory on the cross by paying for our sins by raising from the dead. It's in the resurrection that we see that he is Lord over death and disease, that that last great enemy has been defeated, that it no longer has power. That's why Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians 15 and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Yeah, we face it temporarily, but in light of Jesus' resurrection, death has been made temporary, not eternal. Because that's the power and what he's done for us. That's the work of his touch. His touch in this passage foreshadows the greater touch of what he offers through his death and resurrection for all of us who are desperate under the plague of disease and death. And when we encounter that, like the people, we're left amazed. 
amazed at Jesus' power, at what he's done for us, to actually see and experience the truth of Jesus' touch, his healing, saving touch through the gospel leaves us in a place of amazement. That's why we get together every week. This isn't a show. This is, we get together because Jesus is so amazing and we've encountered that. We've got to get together and be like, man, I've got to praise him. I've got to worship him. I've got to make much of him. And so we set aside one morning a week to gather as his community to offer our praise and worship to him because he's that amazing. And the good news of the gospel is that's what he offers to you, to all of us. If you feel desperate under the reality of death, disease, brokenness, whether you're a living death where you feel the social brokenness or cut off from God, Jesus offers healing by his death and resurrection. But how does that come to us? How do we receive that? Well, that's where the third connection in the story is really significant. So when Mark tells two stories, when he sandwiches, he often uses the inner story to help interpret the reality of the outer story. And he does that same thing in this passage and creates an interesting link between those two stories in verses 34 through 36. Go back and hear it again. The woman comes, Jesus calls her out, she tells him the truth, and Jesus says this, daughter, your faith has made you well. So he connects faith with the experience of the salvation that he brings. Then he says, um, go in peace and be healed of your disease. So, so there's the inner story. Now he immediately switches back to the outer story. While he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? And what does Jesus say? Don't fear, believe. So the woman's faith, which experiences the reality of the wholeness and flourishing that God brings, he now challenges Jairus with to say, hold in faith my reality, even though he's facing harrowing circumstances. And so what we see is that our faith is instrumental in the experience of the healing that Jesus wants to bring us eternally. And I think from this, we actually learn some really significant things about the reality of faith. Three things, just real quick, right? I've already like given, I've, I've done sandwiching. I'm like, here's three points stuffed inside, three points, and I'm going to stuff three more in, right? It's, so, didn't think you were getting a nine-point sermon today, but sometimes that's how it goes. But I think there's some really key things about faith that we need to understand if we're to receive what Jesus ultimately offers us in light of death and disease, right? First, faith focuses on Jesus as Messiah and Lord. The faith this woman has is not a generic faith. It's not like a, it's a very focused faith in the reality of Jesus. And when she comes to touch his garment, that's actually a highly symbolic act in acknowledging who she believes him to be. Let me help you see it real quick. So in Numbers chapter 15, God gave his people a very specific command about what they should do with a specific garment that they should wear. You can see it. He says this in Numbers chapter 15. He says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Now the word, Hebrew word for corner is kanaf. I want you to hold that and see that. Why? 
It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. So God gave this command. You're going to wear this special garment. It's going to have these tassels on the corner, the kanath. And it's going to remind you not to follow your ways, but to follow mine. Now, Israel goes through a whole bunch of rebellion. God begins to proclaim to Israel that he's going to send a Messiah, an anointed one that's going to rescue them and to usher in God's full and final kingdom. And in Malachi, one of the last prophets, God makes a significant promise about the Messiah that he's going to send. It says this in Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, so that's a title for the Messiah, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. But the Hebrew word for wings is the same Hebrew word for corner. It's kanaf. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So the promise is the Messiah is going to come and he's going to usher in life and that's going to actually be restorative and that's going to be held in his kanaf, in the corners and the tassels. So Jewish men in Jesus' day would often wear a Zit zit, which is a prayer shawl. I got one when I became a pastor for my parents. Right? And they would wear it, oftentimes draped over them like this. And the reason it's a prayer shawl, because meeting with God in the tent was how Jewish people met with God. But if you had a prayer shawl, you can meet with God anytime by forming a tent over your head. So this is how Jewish men would pray, and they would wear this. And you'll note the Jewish prayer shawl has long tassels on the corner. And so Jesus, being a good Jew, would have worn likely something like this, and he would have had tassels. So when the woman comes to touch his garment, she's not just grabbing at his clothes. She's reaching for his zitzit, and she specifically wants to touch his kanaf, the corner. She's holding on to a promise that the Messiah is going to bring healing in his wings, in his kanaf. So this is not just her randomly going, oh, I hope, I hope maybe. This is her actually saying, I think this is the Messiah, and the word of God tells me that the Messiah will have healing in his kanaf, and so I'll reach for that. That's why when Jesus affirms her faith, he's not just affirming a generic faith. He's affirming that she was the one that actually trusted in him as the Messiah. She's healed in relation to all the crowds around her, right? There's tons of people touching Jesus. They're not getting the same healing. But she's the one who in faith reaches out to trust in him as the Messiah and Lord. So you need to see faith in the passage that brings the sozo, the healing that God will ultimately bring, the flourishing, comes because this woman believes Jesus is the Messiah. And that's where faith starts for every single one of us. To experience the healing that Jesus has for us, eternal healing, right? Put it, you have to put it in that context. The eternal healing that God has for us in terms of death and disease comes first and primarily by recognizing Jesus as Messiah and Lord. That's, that's where faith is grounded. Now, the second thing I think we see about the reality of faith, though, is faith also follows Jesus in delay. So the challenge, her faith now challenges Jairus' faith and who he believes Jesus to be, but Jairus suddenly finds himself in a different situation, right? I mean, you have to imagine, he's like, Jesus, what, you waited, now my daughter's dead? Like, what the heck? And Jesus' response is, don't fear, but believe. Have faith in me. This isn't the end of the story. 
So faith isn't just a, okay, I recognize Jesus as Lord, and then I move on. It's actually a continuing following of Jesus, even when our circumstances challenge us in relation to that reality. Tim Keller says beautifully in his commentary on this passage that faith often requires more of us than we are initially are willing to give. It does. It requires more of us than we are initially willing to give. And you see that for both of them in the passage. The woman comes, she just wants to remain anonymous. She's like, I'm going to touch, get my healing, and move on. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We're not doing sneak attack here. Who touched me? And he forces her to come out. There's a requirement of her beyond just her initial act. And it's the same thing for Jairus. He comes, I just want you to come heal my girl. Just come touch her. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm going to delay, and are you willing to follow me in the delay? Are you going to mock me like all the rest of the crowd? Right? Following Jesus in faith, it centers on him as Messiah and Lord, but it often requires us to follow him in deeper reality in relation to the challenges that death and disease bring in our life. Faith isn't just this simple, passive, oh, I believe once and I move on. It's a holding on to Jesus in all the circumstances and places of life, believing that he is bringing a full salvation to you. You might not experience that in the way you thought, in the way you assumed, but Jesus' challenge is still the same. Don't fear. I'm Lord. I've got this. Hold on to me. And don't miss the fact that the example of faith in this passage is the underprivileged, no-name woman. It's not the privileged Pharisee. It's not the guy at the top of society and the ruler of the synagogue. Oftentimes, the greatest demonstration of faith are those who suffer the most under the reality of society or disease or challenges that you and I don't face in the same way. And they can become profound examples of what it means to hold on to Jesus and to follow him, not in fear, but in faith. And she's a profound example to us, and we see these examples around us all the time. And then ultimately what we see is that faith receives the gift of salvation. The the full, flourishing life. Again, Keller's helpful here. I think he's brilliant. He says, Jesus often, faith often requires more of us than we're initially willing to give, but Jesus has more for us than we initially think. She just wants like, "Can can I deal with this discharge? Jesus like, I got more than that for you, girl. I got like full restoration back to the community and God. Not only that, you get highlighted. You wanted to stay in the shadows? I'm going to highlight you so they can all see you're somebody that represents my kingdom. And even beyond that, he's got a greater story in the work that he will ultimately do. And Iris is the same way. You think he ever forgot this moment? You ever think he got to a point in his life where he's like, oh yeah, remember when Jesus raised my daughter from the dead? Forgot about that. Like, no, he received something from the Lord that would shape the very essence of his life. Jesus has more for us. What he ultimately has is the fullness of salvation for us. Now, remember, this is revealed in the reality of the greater work of salvation he's doing across history. Jesus' promise is not that every disease or every act of death will be healed right now. 
His promise is that by his death and resurrection, he will overturn death and disease in such a way that when the new heavens and the new earth come, they will be no more. That's why Revelation says there's going to be no more tears, no more crying, no more death, no more brokenness, because ultimately through his work, he will reverse that for all of us in his timing. All of us who put our faith in him. And so that's where Mark leaves us in this section. Jesus is going to go on and back to his hometown. And you know what's going to happen there? Not a lot. Why? Mark makes it clear. Because they don't have faith. And so the question is, will you have faith? Will you trust Jesus as Messiah and Lord? Will you hold on to him? No matter what harrowing circumstances you might face. Because you know he's got a better thing coming on the other side. And will you receive the salvation that he has for you and for all of his creation by trusting in him and following after him? I hope you do. In fact, let me pray for you right now. Lord God, thank you for what you reveal to us about the truth of your son. Thank you for the incredible authority that he has. Thank you that he is Lord over death and that even by his death and resurrection he has conquered that enemy for us such that we can have hope in this life that we can begin to experience now the fruit of salvation and have hope in the fullness of that experience one day in your new creation so we just stand for a moment in awe jesus of who you are and what you've done and so in light of that would you help us have faith this morning god in the son of god Would you help us to hold on to him? Would you help remind us that he's doing a work in us that he will bring to completion? He's made that promise, and therefore we can hold fast. God, I don't know what everybody in this room is facing, but I know whatever it is, it likely is challenging their faith. And they need the help of your spirit, just like I do, Lord, to hold fast to Christ and to be reminded of the work that he's doing and will do ultimately in and through us. So even now, while we just prepare to respond in worship, would you just move to stir our faith in him in a deeper way as we proclaim his reality? Would you help us to trust more deeply? We ask this in your name, the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.